Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. We have reached the end of the spring season and we are going to preview the MIA Championship Games to be played this weekend at Polar Park in Worcester. I am in studio today with co-host Matt Feld, who has been covering the tournament from start to soon to be finish. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. What's up, man? Not much. I feel like we've already kind of had this podcast because all year we're <laughs> predicting that Franklin and Taunton are going to play in D1. Milton's going to be back in D2, and here they are. So you've been covering it along the way, like I said. Some some teams that made impressive runs that we should give some credit to here before we move on to these championship games. Methuen had a really nice run this year. It would be nice to give Worcester Academy, or not Worcester Academy, I mean Westford Academy, a little bit of credit. They They lost a total of one game all season, went into the tournament undefeated. Had a nice run. Who were some of the teams that stood out other than these teams that are going to be playing Friday and Saturday night? Yeah, I mean, you touched upon Westford Academy, who was 20-0 before they lost to St. John Shrewsbury in the in the quarterfinals. So anytime you go home with, with one loss in the year, kind of regardless of where it ends up, it's been a, it's been a pretty good year for you, for sure. I thought St. Mary's had a really good second half of the season. Really young, Derek Jana's team was, was really young this year, and they're always contenders and competitors, but they beat Milton at one point during the season before ultimately losing in the semifinals to, to King Phillip. And Women Hanson, the other, the other D2 runner-up, first-year head coach, Matt Henriksen, they won the Patriot League. Keenan Championship by by beating Plymouth North on the road, which is never easy to do. And then they gave Milton a, a good run for their money. I think they were down one nothing in the in the bottom of the sixth before Milton added a couple of insurance runs. Probably a team that's definitely going to get better and improve. They were really young in general across the board. Have a lot of pieces coming back next year. So there are a lot more uh, teams beyond those that are just playing this weekend that have accomplished a lot this season. And certainly maybe in Whitman Hanson's case. And Westford Academy's case also, they got Jake Cullen coming back next year. Teams that have probably laid the foundation for for strong futures. Yeah, it is pretty amazing that these teams, in particular, I mean, King Philip, you can lump them in there too because they yeah. were, they made a deep run last year. But Franklin, Taunton, King Philip, Milton, so impressive that they're back to this stage of the tournament because, like you said, they're not blowing everybody out. They're they're gonna they're getting tested. They're playing close games. They're trailing deep into games. The other day, Ryan McDougal, when you see him come alive late in a tournament, that's probably scary for these teams, particularly Franklin now is the only team left in Division One, So they're seeing him get hot. They know that he had the, the game-winning home run last year in the championship game. What do you think makes Taunton such a tough team this time of year? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, they were in the state championship also in 2019. There was no there was no season in 2020. So they've been in the in the state final three of the last the last four years. Mm-hmm. But there's been a postseason. But you just look across the board. I just think they're such a tough team. I think they're mentally tough. They compete probably better than anyone in Massachusetts. I mean, Braden Sullivan and, and Braden Cali and Dawson Bryce and Ryan McDougal, they're all great players, of course. That's why they're going to the schools or, or playing at the level that they're at. But just kind of their compete level, I think, is just off the charts. They're down against BC High in the, in the round of eight at home, and they come back and win a one-run game. The other day, St. John Shrewsbury is up 3 nothing, four batters into the game, including letting up a, a leadoff home run. And, and they find a way to hang in the game and make it 3-2 to two and then ultimately take a lead and really end up kind of going and running away with the game overall. You watch... You watch Tom play and you watch them take the field, and and I don't mean this negatively, but they're not exactly an overly physically imposing team. They're not going out there with 210, 230 pound players, but but they just find a way to play the game the right way. They're very defensively sound. They're athletic. They're versatile. They got guys that can play a lot of different positions, and he, and, and Blair Bork's got a lot of guys that he can go out there and, and throw strikes pretty consistently. So I think one of the things that just makes them overly tough to beat is I think they have got the same type of quality player across the diamond, even if there's necessarily not one superstar. They've got players across the board that are able to kind of handle themselves and compete at the same level, as opposed to other programs that maybe have two or three stars, and then there's a, and then there's a massive drop-off. Yeah, I was reading in your story about from the semifinal matchup 
And Blair Bork was saying, like, no team goes into the season, sets the goal to win the state championship. And you're like, that's kind of weird for Taunton because you would think that's the only goal. They're, they're there every year. But it, maybe that takes a little bit of pressure off when they get there that, like, hey, this isn't the end-all, be-all for us. We're, we're just trying to string together positive days and everybody improve throughout the year and come together as a team. Do you think they, it seems like just their attitude in the state tournament is something every team could benefit from if they took that approach? Yeah, it seems like they almost expect to win. And even if, and if, and if like you said, if they don't or they're not victorious, they're, they're not really out there necessarily. It's not that they're not competitors in terms of a winning or losing perspective. It's that they're out there enjoying the fact that they're playing and that helps takes a lot of the pressure off. And I think obviously it's, it's reflected in their success and, and their ability to be at the top of division one consistently now for, for half a decade, pretty much that it's, that it's a message that sort of works where they're playing again for their schools and, and, and they, and they want to win for their teammates and for their friends and for their families, but they're not, they're not necessarily going out there to win for, for selfish reasons. And again, like you said, I do, I do think that kind of helps from a pressure standpoint. Ryan McDougal's a good example. I mean, he had a great year last year. He hit the game winning home run and statistically this year, he's he's been up and down and he knows that he talks about it pretty openly in post-game interviews and and so does Blair Bork but he's able to come in the other day and and put together some big two out at bats and and get four two out RBIs that helps them win the game including the big hit and it's probably because it's just an environment where he knows he's got teammates around him that pick him up and he's able to still maintain a level head and find a way to be successful because he's not doesn't have to put that type of type of pressure on himself so I just think at this point now it's like you watch college programs that play at such a high level and you listen to them like those coaches speak they understand how to take the pressure off their off their players, and it sounds like Blair Bork's kind of done that. Yeah, and we know Franklin's going to start Alfred Mucciaroni, who has been one of the best, if not the best pitcher in the MIA this year. He's going to UMass Lowell, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, who do you expect to see for Taunton? That's kind of more of a little bit more of a question mark, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think one thing that's been interesting, too, is that Taunton's had to deal with some some injuries this year to their arms, whether they're arms that were just, you know, pitchers or, or two-way guys also. So I really don't know who, who Blair Bork's going to throw. The other day, he went to the bullpen early and was able to to bring in Braden Morin, who kind of stuffed, you know, shut St. John's lineup down. That was that was that was playing at a very high level through the first two and a third innings. You know, you can always see one of the Cowley brothers. That's usually a, a safe bet that you're going to see one of them out there on the mound. But it'll be interesting to see. I think one thing that, that Blair Bork's been, been shown to do this year is that he's willing to split games up he's able to he's willing to divide games up and it's because of the luxury he has again he's not going to bring in four guys that are throwing mid 90s they, they don't have a team like that but they've got many guys that he can turn to that he can rely on for them to to throw strikes and command the strike zone and, and get ground balls and keep them in the game so I think I, I don't know specifically who's going to throw and I think again like I said I, I, unlike now that they don't have an arm that's capable of matching zeros for zero for seven innings but I think one of the things that makes them tough is they can send multiple guys out there over the course of a over the course of the game yeah, one of one of the interesting things that we could see, I think, if it does, it, it looks like there's a lot of rain in the forecast Saturday, and if things yeah. get bumped at all, you said that was kind of a bullpen game for Taunton the other day. I mean, that they played on Tuesday in the semifinal. Yes. Maybe you bring back some of the guys that pitched on Tuesday on Sunday. Yeah, it definitely creates interesting possibilities, not just in that game, but for all of them, for sure. I mean, if that game were to get pushed to Sunday, Scott Longo from Milton would be available, and I'm sure Owen McHugh would still start, but Scott Longo's available out of the bullpen, and Austin Campbell would be available out of the bullpen for Zach Brown and his team behind Mucciaroni, if that's something that they wanted to explore. So it would certainly create possibilities for, for a number of teams. Caleb Allen from Oakmont would be would be available because that's four days as well and he just threw obviously a great game against Taconic which I'm sure we'll get to but any sort of rain in the forecast that pushes anything to Sunday and with the pitch count rules certainly opens the door for a number of variables when it comes to the way that teams can manipulate their starting pitching and then also pitching in the back end. 
Yeah. Now let's look at Franklin's roster, and they they're just loaded. Every position they seem to have guys who have been there and making deep postseason runs. Ryan Garrity. Feel like he committed to Northeastern like three years ago, and he's still at Franklin. Henry DeGiorgio, also a Northeastern commit, he's their shortstop. Jace Lyons, I think, is a f- quarterback of their football team, so everybody's n- known of him for a while. And like we said, Alfred Mucciaroni has been the best pitcher in the state so far this season. He's up for our MIA Player of the Year award. What makes Franklin so tough and? Is it possible that Franklin, who was in the same matchup last year with Taunton and lost, goes into the matchup this year as the favorite? Yeah, I don't know if if you were in, in Vegas for a high school sporting event, which of course is not a thing, thankfully, for society. <laughs> this is probably a pretty even game across the board. I mean, Franklin won the two regular season games. They won 3-2 to two at Taunton earlier in the year, and they won 7-4 to four later in the year. And, and Taunton not being fully healthy positional-wise in the field certainly changes the landscape a little bit as well. Taunton seen Mucciaroni before. They faced him the second time, and, and Dawson Bryce did hit a, hit a home run midway through the game that got Taunton back in the game. So it's a, it's a, it's two teams that are very familiar, and sure, Taunton won last year. Do I have a favorite? I, I, pick, I picked Franklin to win 3-2. to two. I think that's kind of how I felt one way or the other, one, one, one run one way or the other. Last year, I think the game was 2-1, to one, I think was the final score. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's it's really tight just because of the familiarity between the two teams. When Franklin takes the field, I had a, I had a assistant coach that was getting ready to play Franklin in the tournament this year reached out to me and he was like, it's like preparing for a college team because they've got guys who are set to play college baseball all over the place and they take the field and, they, and they're well built out, they're athletic, and they're pretty physical kids. One thing that I'm going to be interested to see is that in the second matchup against Taun, Franklin's bottom of the lineup really helped contribute, kind of gaining Franklin some breathing room early on and then help them add on later on when, after Bryce hit the home run that got Taun back in the game. It's going to be a huge element in this game, in my opinion, to see if, if Franklin's lineup, especially towards the bottom, has the same type of success. Franklin was scoring a massive amount of runs for the first half of the season um, they weren't just winning games and being 14 and 0 and eventually 17 and 0 they were they were winning games by lopsided margins now as the pitching's gotten better and the competition's gotten better of course they're not going to score 8 10 12 runs a game but if Taun can keep them below five runs which is probably where they have to be to win the game against a pitcher like Mucciaroni they certainly have a certainly have a strong chance to win how would you compare the coaching styles of the two coaches Blair Bork and Zach Brown obviously from Franklin both been in so many big games. We know Zach Brown, his father is the head coach at UMass football. Uh, so they've got a lot of coaching pedigree, but they, they're different. You can see during in-game, they approach it a little bit differently. How, how do What are these two coaching styles like? Yeah, I think Franklin's always been a little more, I wouldn't even say more aggressive, but they seem to create, try to create a little bit more movement. The other day against Methuen, Franklin delayed steal on a, on a number of occasions, something that probably doesn't work as well against Taun. But even last year in the state final, it was 2-1 to Taun in the top of the seventh, I think top of the seventh and Ton got a runner to third with nobody out with a leadoff triple and, and it looked like they were attempting a suicide squeeze and, and Franklin correctly called it out and, and backpicked at third base and, and was able to, to kind of snuff it out. I think Ton is much more kind of level-headed and, and kind of next play oriented and kind of focus on the moment and they do a good job staying composed and, and not that Franklin does it but Franklin to me is always trying to be the aggressor and trying to kind of create a little bit more havoc and kind of cause the the opposing team to react to what the to the way that they're playing and so it kind of creates two different styles where Ton's trying to stay even keeled and sort of again focusing on the next play not getting too caught up in what just happened while Franklin's trying to be kind of stepping on the gas pedal trying to be on your nose trying to be the people that are kind of setting and, and dictating the pace of play. All right, so that D1 championship game is going to be, well, it's scheduled for 6 p.m. Saturday, Polar Park in Worcester. Like I said, there's rain in the forecast, so keep an eye on that. Sunday is the rain date if these things get pushed. 
Division two. So my one thought for like all these teams, Franklin, Taunton, King Phillip, Milton, like we don't really talk about dynasties in high school baseball because you're turning over these graduating classes every year. And it's not like Shaq and Kobe on the Lakers who were there together for six or seven years. But without the other team in the division, any of these teams could have maybe two, three state championships. You look at like Franklin, if Taunton wasn't in the way, they'd have a few. Same for if Frank, if T- Franklin wasn't in the way, Taunton would have a few maybe, depending on what happens this year. Yeah. Ta- Taunton won last year anyway. Milton has been in King Phillip's way, but King Phillip has put together a really solid two-year stretch here. What do you what do you like about King Philip? What can people expect that would go out to see them play on Friday at 7 p.m.? Yeah, what a great run for King Philip yet again this time around. A team that's gotten healthier as the year has gone on and, and maybe lost a couple of games early on that they that they regret and look back on, but they do play in a great conference, of course. But t- Brendan Senjak is, is one of the best position players in the state. A player that, for whatever reason, doesn't maybe get the notoriety, and it's certainly not because of local media outlets that that maybe other players in the state do. Plays third base at King Phillip, and is just a great hitter. He's athletic. I think if you talk to coaches in that conference, coaches that have played King Phillip, they would tell you that he's one of the better players in the state across the board. Rudy Gately is probably going to start. I assume the final game. He threw six shutout innings in their semifinal, in their quarterfinal win. Excuse me, against Westwood. This is a team that's kind of been able to grind out wins. They they held off North Attleboro, a scare from a league foe in a in a second round game. They beat Westwood in, in extra innings on a walk off, and they survived St. Mary's the other night. One big thing for King Philip is they've got Tommy Motorano back, a left hander who was supposed to be their ace coming into the year, but has suffered arm injuries. He th- he he threw a complete game in the state semifinals last year against Mansfield. This time around, he's kind of been able to come out of the bullpen, very similar to what Tommy Mitchell's now been able to do for Milton this tournament, and he just creates a different weapon for them where he can come out, whether it's one inning or two-thirds of an inning or a couple of batters, and just sort of change the game because he's very electric from the left side. So I expect a team that's ready to compete. They will be ready to compete. When you look at their schedule, they've certainly not been scared to back down. They played Braintree Non-League, amongst others, to help them prepare for the tournament. They've been there before. Last year, I thought Milton was far and away the better team. I think Everyone thought last year that Milton was, was probably going to end its season with a state championship. This time around, probably a little bit more of, a, of an even game. Yeah. And Milton, what an unbelievable run they've had the last couple <laughs> of years. They've played really difficult schedules. They graduated Charlie Walker last year, who went off to Northeastern, had a really good freshman year. But here they are again. You mentioned Scott Longo. He kind of came on out of nowhere, well, at least from anyone's perspective that wasn't in that Milton program. He's a 2025 graduate, so he's just a sophomore. He's been as good as just about anybody except maybe Owen McHugh, who is maybe the favorite right now for MIA Player of the Year. He's kind of had a lot of big moments throughout the tournament. He's coming off that state championship last year. Milton is just a really tough out. But you you said they've been tested late in games. They've somehow put it all together. What makes them so tough? Well, a couple of things. Number one is that having been there before, of course, makes a huge difference. I mean, it's hard to be no hit one and one, a one nothing game and, and still win in advance. And Women Hansen, like I said, gave them certainly gave them a good game in the semifinals. Well, I think their schedule does them wonders and has done them wonders the last two years. They lost to Austin Prep one nothing the first game of the year last year against Evan Blanco. There was really no harm in that. And this year they've suffered some injuries. Again, Mitchell's back, but has been hurt for a lot of the season and that caused them to do some reshuffling of the pitching staff throughout the 
course of the year and kind of fill some holes. They maybe not hit as well as they did a year ago, but they're so athletic. Jimmy Fallon, Owen McHugh, Scott Longo, Jack Finnegan, amongst others, that they run the bases so well. I mean, they get on base and they just create all sorts of havoc and they're very, very aggressive and, and they're very, they're never been scared to, to push the envelope. If they get thrown out, they're going to run again and again and again and seeing an opposing high school team can make plays. So to me, that's the tough thing about Milton is that they're not going to necessarily hit the ball out of the ballpark. They're not going to hit five home runs in the game or anything like that. They might not even score eight, nine, 10 runs, but they're going to find a way to get enough across for their pitching staff. And as you said, Owen McHugh and Scott Longo that have led that pitching staff that have just been dynamic. They've been borderline unhittable at times this year. And they're always going to give themselves a chance to win. It's very similar to me, the Franklin Taunton game in the in the aspect that if Milton scores five, six, seven runs, they're just so hard to beat because of their staff. Mm-hmm. And so King Phillips going to have to kind of find a way to keep them off the board. And, and that starts with keeping them off the bases because they steal bases at a very high clip. Yeah, and Milton seems like they could potentially be back here next year with Scott Longo and Tommy Mitchell. Mitchell's a junior. Yeah. So, yeah, they could have those two guys as their one-two. That's a scary thought, too, for other these the other D2 programs. Let's take a quick look at D3. And it's interesting to me that Medfield's here because Medfield, I think, was probably had more talent last year when Jack Goodman was there as a shortstop and then Thomas yeah. Shirt left, yeah. who is now at Penn, I believe, D1 program. He's an Ivy League pitcher and he's had a good freshman year too. So, but somehow they were a, a quick out last year in the tournament and here they are in the final against Oakmont, who had a really nice matchup the other day with Taconic. Matt Lee, who is a Kansas State-bound pitcher for Taconic, got the start against Caleb Allen. who's a, So he's another MIA Player of the Year candidate for us. I'm going to go through those 10 players that we nominated and just kind of talk through how they did in the tournament or how their teams did in the tournament. I'll do that in a second. But let's do a, take a quick look at D3. Oakmont versus Medfield. What are your What are your thoughts on that that matchup? Yeah, you mentioned it. I mean, I think last year I, I might have picked Medfield to win the state championship last year. I think I might have because I just thought Jack Goodman was such a great player, and he was. And he's playing on the he's playing on the Cape League this summer after after a good year at Pepperdine. So, yep. they just got upset. I think by Amesbury or Newburyport, excuse me, in the in the quarterfinal last year. But they found a way to to have their to to come back this year. Jack Collins, who who I believe was the TVL MVP, I mean, it's been just been a great two way player. I expect him to start the state championship game. Has kind of been the heart and soul of that team in every step of the way. He's managed to to kind of uh, lead them. They've been exceptional throughout the year. You see Medfield take the, and I mean this in a positive in a positive manner. You see Medfield take the team, and they're not again they're not a team that's going to overly intimidate you, but they just play the game the right way. Dave Worthley, the, the head coach, has has found a way to kind of create a system in place where they challenge themselves. They play Zavarian multiple times during the season. They play in a tough league with Westwood and Hopkinton that are always contenders in Division Two and play also themselves tough non-league games. And, and to me, it's just created a culture where, there's, where they're really successful. Like Jacob DeCoste was really good in the semifinal game the other day through a complete game, I believe, and, and only let up two runs. Colby Hatch has been, Hatch has been really good with, for them. Brock Thompson's been really good for them. So to me, Medfield's just one of those teams that's just well-coached. They're well put together. They play the game the right way. They're fundamentally sound. They're competitive. And the players that were part of the team last year that lost probably learned a lot from that defeat a season ago. And sometimes it's not the team that you expect to get there at the team that you don't expect to get there that gets the that gets the job done and and again probably a year later than people expected but a program that certainly has asserted itself as one of the better ones in division three and oakmont if they had caleb allen on the mound for this game i would feel pretty confident in there what what else, what do they have behind him because he just pitched on tuesday yeah i mean again a, a program it would be really interesting to see if if the game were to get postponed and be pushed to Sunday. I don't know how many pitches Allen threw the other day in his complete game. My guess is it was over 100 because of the amount of strikeouts he had. And certainly that's still a lot. 
to to kind of expect a kid to 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 kind of rely on after such a big performance. Four days is not a lot of days of rest regardless, but I would assume that if he was available, he would find a way to, to take them out. He's been that good for them, and he's been their tone setter too at the plate in, in every respect. One thing about, about Oakmont, though, is I say they're pretty deep. Isaiah Smith, the left fielder for them, their cleanup hitter has been huge. He's hit a couple home runs this year, including a grand slam. Ben Forbes, their third baseman, is an athletic player who's who's been one of the better gloves in the state. But the big thing on the mound for Oakmont, I think, is just to find a way to piece the game together. That's what they've done in other games when, when Allen hasn't been on the mound. And, and Allen's been able to, to fortunately throw a lot of their bigger games for them, including Lemonster, who they played earlier this year in a, in a non-league game. Colby, Colby Goldrup's been huge for them in the lineup. But I expect to see two or three different arms from, from, from Oakmont this game. Again, if they can find a way to get the game to Sunday, I, I have a pretty good idea of who would start the game, regardless of the amount of rest that he might be on. But I have a feeling that Oakmont will throw a number of different guys uh, on, on Saturday against the lineup that's that's really hard to navigate. I agree with you. If Allen was starting, Allen would probably Oklahoma would probably be the favorite. But without him on the mound, with Jack Collins, who gets the chance to be the TVL MVP and, and kind of finish off the season for, for Medfield, they're probably slight favorites in the game. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Caleb Allen possibly coming back on kind of short rest on Sunday if that game gets pushed and pitch limit counts and everything. And now these days I feel like coaches get killed on Twitter. Oh my gosh, please. Anytime that happens, like it just happened in the uh, super regional. I think a college pitcher threw like 150 pitches. Yes. And the, who knows what the player was saying that he wanted, who knows what, but everybody jumps on and they're like, how could you let this kid do it? He's still an amateur. He just probably burn out his arm and you're like, how could this happen? Yeah. It's just, <laughs> you're going to get killed no matter what decision you make here as a coach. So Got to be careful, but um, or, or if you don't do that, then you're like playing to lose, and you're a losing coach. Yes, there's, yeah, yeah. There's no, so, there's no winning here. We're all losers, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick look. I'll at least give you the schedule. If you have a pick here, let me know. D four state final that's going to be played on six seventeen. What is that? Tomorrow? Sat- is that Saturday? Saturday, Saturday at three p.m. Abington, who is the number twelve seed. Versus Seekonk. I think Seekonk's a three, yeah. Do you know anything about those matchups, or do you have a pick? Well, Abington, I believe... Well, Abington, I don't believe. Abington won the state championship in 2009. 2009. They lost a couple of years ago in the final. Catcher Spencer Merricks is a really good player. But Seekonk, who lost last year in the final, was shockingly knocked off Boston English, in my opinion. I'm not the, That's no disrespect to Seekonk. English was undefeated at the time. Um, I believe they were the last undefeated team left. And they'd won the Boston City League Championship. They had a second... Ba- they have the second baseman, Peguero, who's on our player... Our M- our MIAA player of the year candidates list along with two college bound arms. So I was a little surprised to see English bow out of the tournament, but they play Seekonk. Tyler Kropis was the South Coast Conference MVP hitting 391 and also an ERA well under one on the season. I assume that he's going to start the game for Seekonk. Two teams that played wild semifinal games. Abington's game with Northbridge went 14 innings. And I don't believe either team had a hit until the ninth. And then in Seekonk knocked off English also in another extra inning game. Really good, really good one-run game as well. So I'm going to take Seekonk. They were there last year. They lost. I think they've got the best pitcher on the mound. They've probably got one of the better pitchers in the state in, Krop- in Tyler Kropis. Again, an ER way under one. I think he's got 75 strikeouts in, in 50 innings or so. So I expect Seekonk to win. But actually a pretty good Division Four matchup between two uh, between two smaller schools. Yeah, wow. I You had knew a lot more about that matchup than I expected. <laughs> you got stats and everything. All right, let's go D5. That's another one that's oh. going to be played Saturday. At noon, Polar Park, that's Hopkins Academy versus Bourne. Bourne is the two seed. Hopkins Academy is the nine. 
Now I'm really going to put you to the test here. Do you know anything about this one? Do yes, you probably, the yeah. Born Canalman, which I cannot believe is actually their mascot or nickname. I did not realize that until I saw their jerseys from the other day, and then I looked it up. The only thing I have about this matchup is that Tobin Johnson the other day, who hit the big hit for Bourne, I believe it was a bases-clearing double to give them the win over Ayer Shirley, is a junior. He had not played baseball in six years before this year. He had not played baseball since seventh grade. Whoa. And then decided to take the field this year. And thankfully for him, and thankfully for Warren, he did. He got the big hit the other day that kind of pushed them over the top. So I don't know much about Hopkins, to, to be totally frank and honest. But but one thing I do find, I will say this genuinely about these smaller division schools, is that sometimes these matchups mean a lot more to these schools. Not that Franklin and Taunton don't want to win. Of course they do. They're big-time schools. But these programs have been here before. A lot of times for Bourne and Hopkins and Seekonk, who was there last year, lost it this is a once in a potential school opportunity right which kind of creates different stakes and and again you're truly you win the state championship at Bourne or air shirley who bowed out in the semifinals there's a different type of meaning that kind of surrounds it in the community oakmont a very small community that is literally turning and rallies around an athletic program like it's baseball program that if it wins a state championship it's like winning the world series and again not that it doesn't mean anything for the division one teams because it certainly does um, but it's a different type of of different type of meeting yeah, and I, you look at Franklin, they probably have like eight guys on the roster right now who have commitments to colleges and a lot of D1 guys. These D5 schools, it's probably it for a lot of these players. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That's going to be it for their career. So they're not like, hey, if we don't win, you know, maybe I'll win a conference championship Correct. in college. All right, let's run through, before we do our three up, three down segment, let us run through some player of the year updates. on those. So we nominated 10 candidates. I'm going to give you their name and school if you can remember how they did in the state tournament, a lot of these guys are still going in the tournament. Let's run through here. So Caleb Allen, we touched on Oakmont. He's had a great tournament. I won the semifinal matchup. Would you say he's still in the running for player of the year? Yeah, absolutely. I think he's right at, the, right at the top of the list, particularly if Oakmont wins. I'm not saying he's necessarily the front runner or number one, but I don't know how you cannot take him out. He's literally kind of put this team on his back in a lot of respects. I don't know if anyone else would have won the game against Taconic, and I don't just mean at Oakmont. I mean, I don't know how many other players would have gone in there and beaten Taconic with Matley on the mound the other day. They found a way to get him two runs, and, and he won the game. And, and he's played a shortstop also when he's not on the mound and hit well over 350. So in a lot of respects, I, I think it's hard to find players that maybe he's not the player of the year when it's all said and done. Who knows? But I don't know if you're going to find many players more valuable than what Caleb Allen's meant to Oakmont this year. Yeah, I agree. Second player on our list here is D2 Angel Baez of Lemonster. Lemonster was kind of a quick out in the tournament. They were the number two seed. They lost their second matchup against Mansfield, do you remember? Did Angel start the first game? Or the yeah, yeah, yeah. He started the first game, which they beat Silver Lake four to nothing, and he was the Midwatch League MVP. Right. I thought. I think he's had a great year and probably will likely represent himself on the All State team. I think one thing is it's hard is that when you have other players, and we talked about this, like how much does postseason play a role in Player of the Year? Regular season certainly dominates the equation, right? It's eighty percent or ninety, whatever number you want to put on it. But when other teams, ha when other players have opportunities to further prove themselves and their value, it certainly gives them a, a big time advantage. And I'm certainly, and that's where a lot of these players that are still performing and playing in the state championship weekend are at right now. Yeah, all ten of these players just dominated during <laughs> the regular season, so you kind of need that postseason run to put you over the top. Jack Cropper, he's with Norwood. They held him out for the second game. They, their first matchup was a 16 versus 17 matchup. Uh, he, they held him in that game, and they ended up getting to the game they wanted, which was Milton in the second round. Cropper struggled on the mound, so he's probably going to have 
a tough time making it into the, like the final three, I would think. Yeah, I mean, one thing with Cropper is just, again, he was bothered by, by injuries early in the season, so he had to take it slow at the start, understandably so. And again, he faced a team in Milton that runs like crazy. They're very disciplined at the plate, and they're not intimidated by velocity. They faced that over the last couple of years, so it's just a different type of situation. He was definitely Norwood's best chance to beat Milton if he was A-plus that day, and he was probably... Norwood's only chance to be Milton that A-plus that day. We might find out. We might look back and say the only way that Milton would have lost in the tournament is if they faced Cropper, just like Caleb Allen performing at an A-plus level against against DeConnick. But like you said, other players still performing at a really, really high level. It's really hard for someone like that to ultimately end up winning. Yeah. I felt like he had kind of a similar end. We talked about Thomas White prep season. Like, you get matched up in these tournament games, and all of a sudden it's like a D1 roster. Like, uh, Thomas White was facing Dexter. Yeah. I think they had, like, five D1 commits, and it's like they're going to be able to hit 95-mile-an-hour fastballs. All right, Matt Lee, he was great early in the tournament, and he was even great the other day against Caleb Allen. You can't really knock him, but Caleb Allen just kind of outperformed him, so I would think – He'd have a time, tough time getting the edge on Caleb Allen if we're if we're doing Player of the Year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, they went toe to toe, and obviously Allen won. Lee was still really good. It was just three batters. It was a double, triple, and a sacrifice fly that that was the difference in the game. Lee was tremendous at the plate. He was out in Western Mass, so through no fault of his own, or maybe we're just the ones that need to get out more. He was tremendous throughout the year, and is one of the more special players in Massachusetts. He represented Taconic incredibly well over the course of his career. A program that's always right in the mix um, for championships, and was when they were in division one and it was even in a super eight mix and in contention for that back in back when the super eight was around so a tremendous a tremendous career a tremendous year um again certainly uh will be and, and is an all-state team member when that list comes out next week but someone that certainly deserves consideration is in consideration but as you mentioned it's really hard to put them above others yeah, I think these next two, if we if I if we could do a player of the year and a pitcher of the year, <laughs> I think I would have these two right now as the favorites. And a lot can change on championship day. Last year you think about like Ryan McDougal may have Absolutely. He may have uh, carved out his name as player of the year on championship day just from the way he performed. But I think if Owen McHugh gets the win on Saturday in the championship or Friday night, he's play, he's Friday night, he'd be really difficult to pass over for player of the year he hit like 430 this year a bunch of stolen bases a lot of runs scored and his era was like 134 he's had some tournament highlights already owen McHugh's got to be a favorite of them alfred mucciaroni was the other guy i was thinking of for pitcher of the year undefeated record 13 era they've had a tough schedule at franklin he's approaching 100 strikeouts what do you think who do you who would you say right now is in the lead between owen McHugh and alfred mucciaroni it's pretty hard. I mean, I don't disagree with you in terms of the fact that McHugh being a two-way player, right? I mean, he's incredibly advantageous in that respect, and he's dynamic. He's athletic. He impacts the games in so many ways, particularly when he's on the mound. He sets the tone for the Milton lineup at the plate, and then on the mound, he goes he goes on the mound and has been and has been dominant this year. Mucciaroni, if they win, I believe he'll finish the year 10-0. and I'd have to clarify his record in 21-2 and for his career, which is pretty good. He's been Franklin's guy these last three years on the mound. In some respect, he started the... Sectional final game against Zavarian two years ago. He pitched the state semifinal game last year. He's now, of course, going to pitch the quarterfinal game and the final game. This time around, he's pitching against Ton, their rival for the second time. You're talking about, in my opinion, you're looking at three players in Caleb Allen, 
who probably feels very similar to Owen McHugh in terms of the value that they provided for their team on the mound and at the plate. And then Alfred Mucharoni, who I agree with you. You're talking about a pitcher like a Cy Young and an MVP, right? Two totally different awards in a lot of respects. It's really hard. And again, you're talking about someone who gets a little more value because of the fact that they play at the plate and play consistently every single day also in the middle infield for, for Milton. So I agree. To me, those three players, including those two that you just mentioned, are at the top of the list. And if they all win and, and perform at their highest levels, Caleb Allen a shortstop, Owen McHugh on the mound, Mucharoni on the mound, it's it's really tough. <laughs> yeah. And this next guy, Matt Papalardo from Methuen, he had a really good tournament. They made a nice run as a 21 seed. They got to, they just lost to Franklin in the semifinal. So that's a, a really nice run. He pr- They probably needed to get by Franklin for him to win player of the year, but there was a point there, like a few days, where I was like, "He, if they go all the way, maybe he's the guy." I thought if Methuen won the championship, like it was not going to even be like think twice. I mean, you're right, talking about a 21 yeah. seed, and the kid has probably pretty much put the team. And again, Methuen had guys like Owen Sullivan and Owen Nealon step up, and other guys really rise to the occasion. But this, but Papalardo really was the guy. Yeah. Um, against Central Catholic, two innings, six, two runs, six over six innings, including striking out the side in the sixth, hit the game-winning triple. He beat Andover in the first round. He's just been dominant, and he had a tremendous season. I mean, go, he was probably the most underrated player in the state until the last couple of weeks when Methuen's run allowed people to become more knowledgeable about who he was. I had college coaches asking me about him two weeks ago, and I'm like, he's going to Endicott. Like, but yeah, people are like, who is this kid? And uh, and just a tremendous player. If I talk, when, you, when I talked to, to Merrimack Valley coaches before the season started, they all said that he was going to be the best arm and best player in the league. And I think, including myself, people were like, sure, like you've got this kid, this kid, this kid. But you watch Popolardo play. He's a strong kid. He's an incredible competitor. And he had an unbelievable year. And I don't think there's any, I don't think to me there's any doubt that if Methuen had found a way to win two more games, including beating Franklin and then Taunton, I think it would have been really hard for him not to be the player of the year. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the surrounding talent, he was definitely carrying that team. Justin Paguero, who put up huge numbers. We had mentioned them. D4 team. They were undefeated going into the state tournament. He, his numbers are crazy because he was playing in D4 against that level of competition. He's a Dayton commit. He hit 523 over the regular season, 795 slugging percentage. Crazy numbers, but probably needed a deeper run to be on at the top of this list. Yeah, absolutely. And a great player. A, a player that, again, I think some flew under the radar from the statewide perspective and, and helped English have a tremendous year. They won the City League and, again, was one of the best players in the state this year. But like you mentioned, probably would have had to win another game at the very least to be in more serious conversations. And then the last two, we got Matthew Stewart from Chelmsford, Sean Zaslaw from Weymouth. Both teams were great in the regular season, probably didn't go far enough in the tournament, but really good seasons for both of those. Matthew Stewart was Merrimack Valley Conference Division II MVP, Sean Zaslaw, Good two-way player who is headed to Bryant University next year. Stewart's a sophomore, and he's a player who's probably going to win this award at some point, I would imagine, or at least at the very least be in very strong consideration for it the next two years yep. if things go the way that, that he's developed. He's just a moose uh, and, a, and a monster both at the plate and, and on the mound and, and will certainly be one of the best players in the state going forward, including next year in Zaslav. Helped Weymouth win the Bay State Conference. They won more regular season games than they ever have for a program. They won 18 games altogether, including the including the postseason. Again, uh, an all-state-worthy candidate for sure and a great player. But as you mentioned, two players that lost in the second round of the tournament just probably did not make deep enough runs to be at the top of the list. And Matthew Stewart's uncommitted still? Or? Yeah, I don't really know how, but yes. Yeah, where are the uh, Northeastern, <laughs> UMass Lowell? Where are these teams? I'm sure they're in on them, but... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, it is time for the three up, three down segment with producer David Yaz. 
three up, three down. Yes, it's time for everybody's favorite segment, three up, three down. Gentlemen, where I give you three random questions about the sport of baseball. Let's start with uh, Guru Matt Feld first on this one. Uh, is the concept of an opener, which of course is the pitcher takes the mound with a plan to only go one to two innings, what do you think of that innovation? Will it endure in some fashion in the future, or was it a misguided flash in the pan? I don't know if it was misguided, but I don't think it's going to endure either. I think you've seen a lot of teams this year revert back to starting pitching. You know, the Mets spent a ton of money on starting pitching. The Red Sox are hindered by the fact that they don't have enough starting pitching, and so I, I don't think it's a hinder. I don't think it's a hindrance. I think it's a. I think if you've got a great bullpen, you can survive a playoff game trying to pull it together. If you have a starter that's injured or something on short notice, but I think starting pitching is alive and well. I think teams rely on their bullpen now because their starters can't maybe go seven, eight innings. But I think the idea of not having starting pitching anymore, I think it just is totally backfired on the teams that mm. don't have it. Yeah, yeah. Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm okay with it if, if, if it's a bullpen game. But a one-off? Yeah. yeah. Or like you're just out of starters. So you're like, hey, if we can get two innings out of our opener, a couple more longer relief stints, and then go to our bullpen in the sixth, seventh, eighth. I think I agree with it. I've seen it in a couple of instances. Like an opener will come out and pitch an inning, and then they'll follow up with kind of like a swing starter, go four or five, and you're like, I would have just flipped them and had the yeah. guy who's making the longer <laughs> outing pitch first. But, yeah, I mean, a bullpen game, that's fine. Sometimes you run out of arms and you just got to get two innings out of everybody. It's just weird to see a pitcher come out and retire six guys in a row and get pulled from the game. Yeah. Right? It's, always, it's always odd. Yeah, that is. All right, Dan, we'll start with you on question number two. Is the Major League Baseball All-Star Game still something you look forward to? And is there further tinkering of the weekend that could improve it? Not, not, I wouldn't say it's something I look forward to as much as I used to. You think of some of those. I mean, I used to play an MLB All-Star Game in the backyard with my brother every, <laughs> every day in the summer. And mm. we'd have the batting stances and we'd like yeah. tweak the lineup. I loved it. I think it probably has lost a little luster. I think the big turning point was that tie. Remember that? Oh, like yeah. Bud, Ste Bud, Bud Selig sitting yeah. in the front row and like telling the, <laughs> the managers to stop playing. That was a weird one. I, I like the home run derby still. Everybody I used to kill Chris Berman for the back, 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 <laughs> gone. Like yeah. it was tough to listen to, but I like hitting, seeing guys hit 450 foot home runs or mm -hmm. hitting 10 home runs in, in 60 seconds. That's always fun to watch. But yeah, I, I think you're right. It does need to be tweaked a little bit. They've messed around with the NBA All-Star game and put in like skills competitions. I wonder if you could just see like middle infielders turning ridiculous plays, if that mm. would be fun to watch. There's something that needs to probably happen, and I bet they're open to it. With They seem to want to improve the game with the pitch clock and everything like that, but I don't look forward to it well, as they much did, as I used you know, to. They, they changed it. They've made efforts to change the All-Star game. I mean, the, the Home Run Derby is a relatively new innovation. And then they tried that thing where it, it determines home field advantage. Okay, for, that was preposterous. All right, go ahead, <laughs> Matt. It is your turn anyway. Your thoughts? On okay, the yeah, game. the home field for the All World Series was ridiculous. Like, you'd have the team that's like 162 playing the team that's 83 and 79, but the 83 and 79 team is home because substitute one Tony game. Womack hit a home run in the ninth <laughs> inning of the All-Star game. Fair point. Like, that was ridiculous. There was one year the All-Star game went like 14 innings. 
at Yankee Stadium, I think in 2008, which was also ridiculous. I'm out on the All-Star game. I don't watch any All-Star games. I, I just don't do it. I just don't care. Like, I know it sounds bad. I agree with the Home Run Derby. I think the Home Run Derby could be fun, but it's also too long. The Home Run Derby is like four hours. Yeah. Like, who's got the time for that? So <laughs> I don't know what we can do about that, but I would watch the Home Run Derby if it wasn't from seven to midnight. Mm. Maybe eliminate a couple of rounds. Like yes. Start with a field, narrow it down to three, and then just have them, whoever hits the most wins. One thing they could bring back, which I don't know why they got rid of it, probably has to do with merchandising and money, was have everybody wear your your regular uniforms. Yes. You know, that that, that was something cool about seeing a team of all the different colors out there at the field at the same time. And now they just have those AL and NL unis. Anyway, number three, the third question for three up, three down. Whose turn is it? It's Matt's turn. Yes. Who is your favorite baseball broadcaster of all time? Oh, Gary Cohen. I'm also a Mets fan growing up, so that's mm. I'm a little biased in that respect, but I just think he's the best broadcaster out there. I will say that I thought always thought Joe Buck got a bad rap just because he was on so often. But to mm. me, like you turn on a game and Joe Buck's the broadcaster, like what's a big game? Like baseball, bat, football doesn't matter. Uh, I'm a big Joe Buck fan. Mm. Interesting. Damn. I'm going to go with the broadcaster I've probably spent the most time listening to in my life, Harry Callis with oh. the Philadelphia Phillies. Oh. He's also the voice of some NFL films. Sure. He's just a legend, especially in Philadelphia. He died in the broadcast booth. Really? I think it was like 2009. I think they were coming off the World Series in 2008. I believe it was right around like the home opener. He died in the booth. So rest in peace to Harry Callis, but he was he was the best in my you view. You want to hear my Harry, Harry Callis? Yes. Mickey Morandini. There it is. Yeah. Yes. That's a little, I got to work on that. That's a little weak. <laughs> You're both wrong, by the way. Correct answer is Al Michaels, and always will be. Come Al on, Michaels come on. Wow. for baseball. Y- yes, for, yeah, yes, yeah. for ba- for baseball. Well, I mean, he's great for football too. But yeah. I'll, I'll, and was pretty good in that one hockey game, if you remember. Yes, but maybe <laughs> if you the remember. Reason, maybe the, <laughs> I'll tell you guys my very quick version of the Al Michaels story. I met Al Michaels probably 20, 25 years ago or so. I remember it was before the Patriots had won any of those Super Bowls, and he was in town for Monday Night Football. We were talking about how the Patriots stunk. But I told him that I remembered him from his call of the 1986 ALCS Game 5, which is known around here as the Dave Henderson game. He, the Red Sox were down to their last out in Anaheim, and the Angels bring on Donnie Moore, and Henderson hits that miraculous home run to save the Red Sox, eventually send them to the World Series, which didn't work out so well. <laughs> Mr. Met fan over there. So, but but I said to him, I said, so we remember you for that game. Al Michael says, I remember that game. And it wasn't just the Henderson home run. There was a great catch by Jim Rice. It was back and forth. And I said to him, I remember what you said coming out of a commercial. You said, if you just tuned in, too bad. And his eyes widened. He looked at me. He goes, I remember that. He said, my producer told me to sum up. And the only way I could sum up was say, too bad. So, <laughs> But just super nice guy. Like stuff, He was on his way into like this fancy bar in the Four Seasons Hotel. And he stopped and talked to us for a while. So, Did you know I heard Al Michaels eats a steak for dinner every night no yeah. no vegetables like all I eat. heard I heard him on a podcast once just yeah. recently yeah and he said uh, never someone tried to like sneak broccoli into or something and he and he refuses we talk about a a red-blooded american male huh yeah. That poor guy <laughs> suffered through the football season last year. He got the thurs- Thursday night games. Awful. Oh, yeah. And he was just miserable. Amazon Prime. Yeah, they, like he got a bad game every week for like the first eight weeks, and he would just be like, and we're back. For those of you who are still with us, like it was yeah. just brutal, brutal totally. season. Thursday night football, the Monday night football games were 
Ter- whatever, that's a wholly different topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many times can you watch Bears Niners? I mean, at some time. <laughs> <laughs> well, needless to say, you guys have both successfully negotiated three up, three down. And there are some peanuts and Cracker Jacks waiting for you on your way out. Congratulations, gentlemen. I think I've already had that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm running out of baseball-themed snacks. (laughs) Sorry. All right. Well, thanks to producer Dave for his production skills. Listen, subscribe on your preferred platform. Thanks again for listening. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production. 